Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Turmoil and race riots and uh, Vietnam War protests and the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. Also, that year was a uh, election year. And there was also um, Camille, I think, was the, was the hurricane that came through the south. But that's the closest thing in my life to what we're experiencing right now, and this really surpasses it. Just some notes. In um, 1998, there was the impeachment of, uh, attempted impeachment. He was not convicted of Bill Clinton. Then in 1950, there was a great pandemic that swept the country. Many of you, I would encourage you, if you go to American Experience, it's an outstanding, uh, sometimes they're a little left to center for me, but the research is really well done. They do documentaries, uh, usually do six to eight a year on PBS, and they have an excellent documentary on the influenza epidemic of 1918 and how it started in an um, army base in Kansas is their best reckoning and moved through by the troops as they were being transported to France in World War one and they all had to enter this particular entry point in France as they moved out into their uh, regimental um, assignments on the line and everybody who was coming through there was being contaminated and being exposed to it and so it spread throughout the world and millions millions passed away and uh, if you uh, nothing uh, that documentary will really shake you and give you a seriousness about um, uh, viruses and flus and what they can do. Of course, as I mentioned, there was civil unrest in 1968. Uh, Supreme Court rulings that shook a nation and changed our laws and perspective of Roe versus Wade in 1973. Rodney King uh, riots in 1991. It was great. Uh, he was uh, mistreated by the police in Los Angeles. Um, it was a helicopter flying over and got the entire footage. So it just ignited a nation because you could see the whole thing on TV and a grave uh, social injustice to him and to the black community. And then, of course, in the we've had in 2009, we had a great recession. And uh, 1928, there was, a, of course, a great depression. In some ways, we're still re- recovering from that recession. But all these things happened. Six different things happened over six different years. Uh, of course, there were uh, at different uh, different times, but as we look at our culture right now, all these things have happened to us in the last six months. Okay, so we're in an election year. There was an attempt, if you remember, it seems like a long time ago, to impeach the president. Uh, we're in the midst of a, a, um, a pandemic. Yeah, prayerfully, as it's beginning to abate, it seemed to start on the coast and kind of move to the south. A civil unrest. And it's interesting if you document this kind of unrest, it's, it's associated with pandemics, especially as people are told to shelter in place, it grow, grow, creates a frustration in society and the unemployment creates a frustration. And uh, as I've read about past pandemics, this kind of rioting and type of thing, civil unrest is normal with it. Then we've had some uh, groundbreaking civil uh, Supreme Court rulings uh, to the point that, you know, uh, Pre- Vice President Pence he criticized John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, openly and called him a conservative disappointment this week because his fi- he would be he would line up with the liberals and vote on their side in court case after uh, case after case this spring. And of course, we've uh, we've seen real injustice um, uh, to the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd in Armat Arbery, and these were covered up and um, unnecessary killings, and rightly so. The black community has been upset, and yes, we need to address those questions and see why that continues to persist. And I would suggest to you a book I'm almost um, close to finishing. It's called The Color of Compromise by Jabbar Tishby. He is an African-American evangelical pastor who gives you a history of racism and the church's complicity with it in American history. Now, sometimes he downplays white contributions to um, the ending of slavery in the book, but overall, and white contributions sometimes to civil rights. But I think overall, the book will open your eyes. I've grown up in the South. I was taught as a kid that 
uh, African Americans were inferior because they were of the race of Cain. And there was this Genesis 6 thing going on. And I was taught that as a kid. I remember opening my King James Bible going, now how do you get that? You know, as a kid, <clears throat> um, uh, as I mentioned before, I, I rode on segregated bus, buses and during that time. And uh, I have, was shocked at some of the information he had about how African-Americans have been treated throughout the history of our country. And it's a real eye-opening book. And I think it would be good for us to read that. And then, of course, we've experienced actually a depression. You know, we had 35 million people out of work at one point. And uh, I think we lost, I forget the GNP. I saw the chart. It would just go up during the, you know, during the quarters during Trump's administration. And then there was this big dip because we had to shut everything down. And so people feel a lot of frustration over that, you know. And now what we're facing is some frustration over how um, churches are being treated, okay, across the country in regard to um, whether they can meet or not. And in regard to where they have to wear masks or whether you social distance and this type of thing. And uh, some states have been real strict and uh, churches have felt that um, there's some hypocrisy going on. They were told they can't meet or they have to meet in real small groups. And yet they look on TV and see these uh, peaceful protesters uh, with quote marks uh, standing right next to each other with no mask on, screaming and basically spitting into the face of these policemen. Uh, and they're not being reprimanded for it. And yet a uh, mayor of a certain city is shutting down Jewish services and funerals and things uh, because he feels like they're not following the uh, prescribed rules for social distancing. And so churches have felt rightly somewhat frustrated. And it's been in the news the last two weeks. The Supreme Court ruled that the it was not unjust for casinos to be open and like marijuana distribution type centers to be open and people stand right next to each other at these roulette wheels and yet it's wrong for a church uh, to open if you have more than 25 people and you're not social distance you can't meet inside or meet at all you know and the supreme court which was frustrating ruled on the side of the state of nevada and it's like really you know so the question, uh, and then the church in California, John MacArthur and the Grace Community Church, uh, they were told that they could not meet. Uh, it's a larger mega church. Some of you know MacArthur is a very conservative Bible teacher. He's not my favorite because of his anti-charismatic stance, but he is a, a, a man of the word. And uh, they were told by the governor that churches couldn't meet. And so they came out with a statement about two weeks ago declaring that they would continue to meet. They felt that to obey God meant that they needed to obey Hebrews uh, 10, which says, do not forsake the siblings of yourself together. So they felt that the, the government edict was in hindering the um, preaching of the gospel, and therefore they would uh, obey God and not man. And some of you may have seen him. He's been on um, uh, Martha McCallum's. Um, the story, I think it's called, on Fox News. He's usually around 6 Central, something like that. And he's been on her show explaining it a good bit and what they were doing. Then there's been some pushback for some other evangelicals because the tone of the their letter to the governor made it almost sound like you weren't fully committed to the gospel if you didn't do what they were doing. And there was some pushback saying, wait a minute. I mean, there is a provision for us to meet outside. And is this the, really the place where we stand and say, hey, we think they're not telling us don't preach the gospel forever. They're just saying we need you to have limited meetings until this passes. And so there's been some pushback from evangelical conservative pastors who are very godly who say, wait a minute, let, this is not the line that where we think civil disobedience, being disobedient to the governor is the line where we cross right here. And so we looked at Romans 13 last week. And let me just look at it again because it's such an important passage. Okay. That every person be subject to the governing authorities, Paul's saying. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted for, by God. So uh, the governmental structures are different around the world, but there's always been an institution 
whether it be a king, um, might be kind of Athens or the aristocrat. Uh, we say Athens had democracy, but it was really the older men who owned property and who were aristocrats who really had the voting rights. Um, no matter what government was going on, Paul saying that government is something that God's allowed and God is going to use it to restrain evil. We need government to keep people from this. Uh, in a fallen world, everything would just go become so chaotic if there wasn't some governing authority bringing protection and law and order. And so Paul's saying this is something ordained from the Lord. Okay. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. So don't be surprised when you, if you buck up against the government. There was an old John Cougar Mellencamp song, I fight authority and authority always wins. Okay, well, there's your verse for it. Okay, they're bucking against authority and the authorities going back and they're judging them for their bad behavior. Okay, uh, I thought that was always a very biblical song. That, that he didn't know what he was saying, was singing. Um, and so um, we uh, recognize these authorities. We're not anarchists. I think I mentioned last week, and I'll mention it again. We might say, oh, the, uh, you go in a room, and a bunch of kids playing, and you would say, oh, it's crazy. It's chaotic. It's anarchy in that room. Okay, don't go in there. It's all crazy. Okay, that's one use of the word anarchy. But there's a formal philosophical use of the word anarchy. And that philosophical use is the belief that all government is problematic and we need to get rid of all authority. Okay, what we would say is, yes, we believe that the police were instituted by the Lord and they bring law and order and we need to honor them. Yes, there are some bad apples. There's some bad policemen just as like there's bad people. And we all need to deal with that. We might need to bring reforms to fix that. But we're believing that police force is needed, that this is something God uses. And this is part of Romans 13, and we want to honor it. Okay. But there are those who are in Antifa and people who are behind this defund the police movement that we've seen in Portland, Seattle, New York, that they're philosophical anarchists. They believe the problem isn't the people. The problem is the institution itself. If you get rid of the institution, then the e these evils won't happen. Okay, And so we would say, no, uh, we would disagree. But this is a formal philosophy, and that's what they're working toward. And we've seen the results of that already, right? It didn't take long to see the, uh, the um, destruction. If you, There's a great video on Twitter. Someone just drove through the middle of Minneapolis with their phone on their video, and you just watch blocks and blocks of burnout buildings. You know, Walgreens, shoe stores, CVSs, all these things just burnt to the ground. And then the same thing if you've seen the shots of uh, Seattle and the destruction of the businesses and the burning of the Starbucks and these types of things. You can see this kind of anarchy just leads to more, uh, this philosophical anarchy leads to more anarchy and chaos. And verse 3, for rulers are not terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? So here's, here's a real key here that we need to keep uh, in our minds. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. But what happens when a, so in other words, a, good, a ruler should be promoting good behavior. Okay. And they're encouraging people to behave rightly. And if they don't, there's consequences. There's law, there's jail there's courts, etc. The question you raise in your mind then is, what happens if the ruler is not a terror to good conduct, is not a terror to good conduct, becomes a terror, and he kinds of terror and he approves bad conduct? It's a bad government, and they're approving bad behavior, and they're penalizing the good behavior. Okay? This is an instance just this week, Chicago. Okay, you've seen all the news reports of all these people getting just shot in the streets in the south side of Chicago. Drive-by shootings. I saw a lineup of pictures on the screen. Kids from 12 years old, 8 years old, one in an infant seat. A guy drove by to shoot the dad, and the bullet missed the dad and hit the infant in the seat. Okay, So you've seen totals, maybe weekend totals of 25 dead, 5 children killed. Okay. And um, 
the mayor there, I'm not a Chicagoan, but the mayor there is making excuses, to be honest. Uh, they claim it's outside agitators who are causing this, outside guns who are causing this. They've uh, refused federal help and assistance. Uh, someone secretly taped a city council meeting where the alderman that's over that district in Chicago is basically cussing the mayor out for doing nothing because the, every business in, he said, every business in my district is destroyed. Okay. But last Sunday, a church meets in Southside, locks their doors because people have been driving by and shooting at the building. Okay. Suddenly in the middle of the evening service, they hear banging on the door and go out there and there's three police cars and they're going to arrest them for meeting, for worshiping and praying for the community because of the masks and the virus spread and the rules about social distancing and these types of things. It's like, really? So you're honoring the bad and you're, you're punishing the good. Okay. So when that happens, that's when you begin to say, as a believer, do I now disobey the, the laws because they're bad laws? And there's bad in the government's acting badly. And as a Christian, I'm not allowed anymore to be able to stand for truth, be able to preach the gospel. When do we become, in other words, what's the, the question is, when do we cross the line and say, we can't obey you anymore because you're now a bad authority and we need, and you're now denying the gospel, preventing the church, bringing uh, persecution to the church, and we're going to disobey your rules and we're going to continue to meet and we're going to continue to preach. Okay? There's a line there, and sometimes it's a little blurry. Okay? There's a line there. And so the question's been asked of me over the last few weeks when do you, where's that line? Okay? All right? Uh, let's let's go and stay back at three. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? To do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. That word servant is the word for deacon, diakonos. So they're supposed to serve us, not dominate us. For he is God's servant for your good. But you, if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul's saying that there's government authorities. They arrest people who break the law, and they will deal with them. And God, this is a servant ministry of the Lord. And I know it's a hot-button phrase in politics, but it's God's. they are God's servants to bring law and order in the community so that the community can have the freedom to, do, to live life without fear. Okay? Therefore, we must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So as a believer, we're honoring the Lord. So um, I saw a video this week of the Surgeon General. He's a, a doctor. He wears a Navy uniform. It's become tradition to use Navy doctors in that position. African-American young man, very sharp. And I, but I saw a video of him in March saying that... Um, it's not smart to wear a mask. If you wear them wrongly, it could do more harm than good. Okay, that was March 31st, was the dated video. Okay, but we've learned so much since then, and there's been so much studies, and, and studies of behavior and the spread of the virus, that it's become evident <clears throat> that you need to wear a mask. Okay, so I wear a mask eight and a half hours a day. Okay at work, okay, I put a little tape, medical tape across the top. The ophthalmologist told me it would keep me from fogging my glasses, and it has worked. And then another doctor told me yesterday it was a better tape than that that I could use that would irritate my skin less. But I use a medical tape. It's a clear, it looks like scotch tape, but it's a medical tape. You can buy it at CVS. If you've got glasses, just put it across the top. But I'll come home, and there's all this you know, glue all over my glasses from the tape. But it's worth it to me. They've asked me to do it. My business has asked me to do it uh, that I work for. And I'm in that, I'm 63. I'm in that danger category. I've had heart disease. I have heart disease. I've had bypass surgery. They're saying it might damage your lungs if you're older. So you're being careful. I don't have a problem with that rule. It changed. 
I can distinctly remember, and after I saw that video, I remembered February, March, they were saying we're not sure about masks. And then now it's mandatory in a lot of places, and you get fined if you don't wear them. Now, some people have gone overboard and saw that lady spray a man with pepper spray for not having a mask on. Well, she doesn't know why he's not wearing it. it may, he may have lung problems, and he's not wearing it because the doctor told him not to. You know, but you, you can become overreactive, you know. But we're honoring the authorities around us in which it is reasonable, okay? Uh, but it's, so we're doing this for the sake of conscience. We want to be, a, and I'm going to remind ourselves, we want to be a witness and a testimony to the community. We don't want to be a thorn in the side to the government authorities. I think they're trying. And I think in many cases of the last six months, they have made mistakes. They were going by the information they had, some of those early returns that millions were going to die. Remember, that's coming out of an institute at the state of uh, University of Washington that we were going to see millions die and this kinds of thing. It was just just huge reaction to it and fear of it. And then we've seen the numbers go down that these projections were not right. Um, but it, they've had only so much information and you're trying to gather information every day. And I think for the most part, um, with the, maybe the exception of the state of New York, most of them have used this wisely and are trying their best, okay? But uh, so we're trying for the sake of conscience to be a witness to the Lord, to the government authorities. For because of this, you also pay taxes and for the authorities are ministers from God attending to this very thing. I got tickled one time, Bishop Adler, if you remember him, who was the patriarch of the Charismatic Episcopal Church. He's quite a character. He loved to throw hand, what we call in preaching, throwing hand grenades. In other words, you take an extreme position and you pronounce it really boldly to get a reaction. And then you use that reaction to gain attention and then you, you explain what you're doing, okay, or what you're trying to say. And he literally had a, spe a speaking style of what we call, we used to tease in the clergy, throwing hand grenades. Well, he had this pet peeve where he didn't like property taxes, okay? Because you didn't really own your home because the day you didn't pay your property taxes, the government took it. He felt that it was unnecessary authoritarian rule over a natural right of land ownership. And one day he got off on that. I was in a meeting and, and his wife was there and he got off on how evil property taxes were. <laughs> okay. His wife walks up to him. Uh, you know, they both since passed away. His wife walks up to him. And you can hear her say, uh, Randy, you need to tell them they need to pay their taxes. Okay. Because <laughs> it sounded like, after he threw this hand grenade, that he was telling us, don't pay your property taxes. It's, it's illegal. In fact, that's exactly what he said. Don't pay property taxes. It's really illegal. What he meant was theoretically illegal, not really illegal. But <clears throat> so... You can see, you know, I don't want to pay my taxes because a million and a half dollars a day goes to Planned Parenthood. Okay? And no matter, every time we turn around and try to defund them, like they tried to pass a law, oh, they were trying to release that money to us, you know, at $600 and in, in the stimulus money to us, what was a couple months ago? And the Democrats were fighting back and they wanted money for Planned Parenthood in the bill because they thought they could get away with it because the Republicans were under so much pressure to try to get the money out, okay? And someone said, stop, no, you can't add that in there. That's not what we're dealing with, okay? So there's this constant attempt to push abortion and to fund abortion, especially from the left. And so, um, yeah, I wish some days I could just target my money, give it to the soldiers, you know, who are protecting our country or just give it to new highways or to the needy, you know, poor who can need help from outside, the disabled and so forth. But I can't, and so I do pay. Okay. Verse 7, pay to all who is owed them, taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So this is very clear. Now, when uh, Nazi Germany in the 1930s, a very religious uh, country, uh, Lutheranism was the state religion. It was, um, for the most part, each province within uh, Germany, it's hard to explain, but uh, kind of like America, but each state would have its own official religion. Okay, so in some parts of Germany, Calvinism or Reformed faith from Calvin was the official 
religion. Some provinces, Roman Catholicism was the official religion. Mostly it was Lutheranism. It was the official religion in most of the provinces. Because Germany was very deep, uh, uh, deeply committed church government thing. And when Hitler took over, he was voted into office, by the way. And that should shake you. That a society become so desperate it was willing to vote in a man they knew who had already wrote a book called Mein Kampf and he said in the book exactly what his intentions were and his intentions was to eliminate the Jews. And yet he was voted into office by democratic power by a majority. Okay, so that should put us on our knees right there. And so you've uh, Hitler and his minions, Goebbels and them, would use this chapter 13 verse to say, hey, you believers, you've got to obey. Okay? Your churches, your state churches have got to obey. But that's not what I said. They're supposed to bless, Paul said, they're supposed to bless good conduct. Okay? And it got to a point where if you were Jewish, they were passed a law in the mid-30s. If you were Jewish, had a Jewish blood in your, in your line. Say you became a Christian, you were a pastor. Maybe you weren't fully Jewish, maybe you just had a Jewish mom. Okay? But you were a pastor in a German church. You were kicked out of your position because you were Jewish. Okay? Then another law came down that said you had to give full allegiance to Hitler Okay, as a church, that he was the head of the church, okay, and give your full allegiance to him, okay, and support him in his Jewish, anti Jewish discrimination. Okay, that's when, and you've probably heard the word uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's when him and fellow pastors left the German church and formed a smaller group called the Confessing Church. And the confessing means we're confessing Christ as Lord. We respect the Führer, the leader. Führer, Führer in German means just simply means leader. So we respect the leader, but ultimately Christ is Lord. Okay. And they wrote a little document called the Barman Declaration. I forget what year it was, maybe 34, something like that, 36. Declare their allegiance to the Lord first, that he is Christ as Lord. And they didn't use Hitler in the thing that had been too adjective to to uh, uh, to um, controversial, but they if you read the phrasing, you know exactly what they're talking about. Okay, okay, and they paid a price. Almost every confessing church pastor ended up on the front lines in Eastern Europe in the Russian front. Okay, because they had targeted, they knew who they were, and they ended up putting them right in the front lines so they could be killed. Okay. Bonhoeffer had a little exception. He had an aristocratic background. He had a, a brother-in-law that worked for the Obwehr. It was a counterintelligence unit uh, working out of the Navy. And his brother got him a job in the Obwehr. And then they used that, his brother-in-law, and they used that to try to save Jewish people. And then that led to a larger question. We're only saving five or six Jews at a time. How can we get this to stop? Bonhoeffer called it putting a, sto a spoke in the wheel. You know, he used this description of a drunk, and you know someone's drunk, they're in the car, they drive down the road, hit a kid. Okay. Which did he say was the better thing? Be the pastor to the funeral, comfort the family, or run over to the car and put a spoke, what he meant, a stick in the driver's wheel and prevent them from driving in the first place? Okay. You call it putting us, you'll see, uh, if you ever look at Bonhoeffer's works, you'll see titles called Spoke of the Wheel. And that's what he means. We used to have, remember, you used to have those little bars and you'd put them on your, your uh, steering wheel to try to keep your car from being stolen. And of course, they cut those in half too. But he was talking about putting the stick in the thing to keep him from driving drunk so he wouldn't kill the child in the first place. So what Bonhoeffer is saying is we as believers come to a point well, we've got to put a spoke in the wheel. We've got to stop Hitler. We've got to stop all the murder of millions of people. And so he became part of the plot to kill Hitler. Okay. Uh, you've maybe seen the movie um, Valkyrie with Tom Cruise playing Colonel Stauffenberg. 
Bonhoeffer's name is not mentioned in the movie, but the associates he worked with are mentioned in the movie. Okay, and I encourage you to see that movie. It's very powerful. And Cruz actually did a very good job. It's highly criticized that he was getting this uh, position of Stauffenberg. It's like a you know a hero, uh, Abraham Lincoln type figure in the history of Germany, and but he played it very well. But he um, to get to this point. The Romans 13 applies when the government is upholding authority and upholding righteousness. When they begin to use their authority to destroy people's lives and even kill people like the Chinese right now are murdering Uyghurs. Uyghurs are descendants, Muslim descendants uh, on the far west of China. They're a completely different race than the Chinese. Okay, They're Muslim by, nation, uh, by belief and they're locking them up in labor camps. They're calling it re-education camps, but the video footage from the satellites, you can see exactly what's going on in the prisons. And they're sterilizing, forced sterilizing all their women. In other words, they're trying to eliminate them as a race. Right now, this is going on. Okay. So you're, you're, um, there's, uh, when some of the NBA players wanted to wear Free the Uyghurs on their shirts, they got pushed back. Okay, from the NBA because they wanted to say free Hong Kong and free the Uyghurs, and they got pushback from the NBA because the NBA has so much financial interest in China. They don't want to lose that. Okay, so you see the same thing is still going on, and China's a very it's become it's become more and more corrupt and more and more uh, dictatorial and much more authoritarian. Okay, so if you're in a position in China as a believer. You're meeting underground. You're meeting in house churches. You're doing it secretly. Uh, some provinces, you can have church buildings. You can operate pretty freely. Some private, depending on the local leaders, you're having to hide. Okay, so you're openly disobeying the communist government because they are denying the gospel. Okay, now turn with me to Acts 4. And we'll try to go through this pretty quick. I didn't mean to explain that so long. But I wanted you to see that we tend, if we err as believers, we're going to err on the side of honoring authority right now. Okay? That's where we're going to err. I get concerned that some believers are too quick to get offended, maybe too quick to say, this is violating our conscience. We can't do this anymore. You know, so we need to be cautious. Because uh, I read First Peter 2 to you last week. Peter talked about honoring the emperor. Remember, they didn't have, uh, this is not a democratic republic. That was a dictatorship that they were living under. And they were being oppressed by the Roman army. And they're living under um, Roman rule. Okay. Now, then, let's see how I can speed this up just a little bit. Let's go to just start at chapter 4. It's just a beautiful story in Acts 4. Uh, Peter and John have been preaching, and they prayed for the man at the gate, the lame beggar at the gate, and he was healed. And uh, at the end, in chapter three, and Peter launches into a sermon explaining how it's Christ who heals, not him, um, and explains, uh, cause them to repent and come to Christ. Then in chapter four, the Sanhedrin is upset. The Sadducees are upset that he was, he's preaching in what is called Solomon's portico. So it's just a big open plaza with a little roof over it. And people are coming to Christ right in the Jewish temple. And they're being healed and Christ is being proclaimed. And the Jewish leaders are thinking, I thought we dealt with this. You know, we crucified him. In verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were preaching the people... Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they were upset that they were preaching that Jesus is still alive. Okay, verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men who came, uh, came about 5,000. So Peter's sermon roughly led, these are approximate numbers, of course, in Scripture, and roughly 5,000 people came to Christ through Peter's sermon as he was preaching that Christ had risen from the dead. 
On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Coppus and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Okay, in other words, you didn't have our authority. What gives you the right to do this? Then Peter, filled the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So Peter's taking no credit for having a gift of healing or he has some kind of healing ministry. He's saying that this is Christ, is Christ operating through him. You're saying this man is dead, he's alive and he's still working, he's still healing in power. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. I believe he's quoting Psalm 118. And there is a salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, so that's called the exclusivity of Christ in theology. There is only one way and means to be made right with God. It upsets some people because they want us to believe in all religions and that type of thing. But Peter himself is teaching what Jesus himself taught, that he was the only way to God. And if you want a right relationship with God, you must believe in Christ. And that he is death and resurrection is for you. And that he only through what he has done for you can you be right with God. Verse 13, and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men. Now this word uneducated has been misinterpreted. I heard this when I was a kid. Don't go to seminary because the apostles were uneducated. If you go to seminary, you won't be like the apostles. You will be educated out of your beliefs and out of your faith. And therefore, you shouldn't go to school. Okay, that's a misunderstanding of the text. Okay. It's this idea of the simplicity of faith. God will use you more. If you complicate yourself with a lot of education, you'll not be doing what the apostles are doing. What the Pharisees and the leaders are saying, you're uneducating common men. In other words, you didn't go to our school. You didn't get approved to be a rabbi with our, uh, in our certificates. You didn't study the Hebrew Bible with us. It doesn't mean they weren't dumb and they hadn't gone to school. They hadn't studied, right? they're quite sharp. But it just means you didn't go through the training we approve of. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus in that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized in their character and their preaching, their attitudes and their ministry that he w- they were completely reflecting the character of the person that they had killed, Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Okay, bam. Okay, there's one of your lines right there that's been drawn. Okay, the governmental authorities who Peter and John are respecting have now told them, you can be free, just can't preach the gospel anymore. Okay, the civil disobedience, that's the line, one of the lines that would cross. Okay, if a civil authority is now commanding that the gospel should no longer be preached, permanently, okay, then that's when you begin to disobey their commands and disobey their laws. It's not about me being offended, whether I have to wear a mask or not, or whether I'm social distance or not. It's about the gospel. It's not about whether the government has the politics I want them to have. It's about the gospel. Okay. So they called them and charged them, this is verse 18, not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, we must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, 
they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. And all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So everyone knew and had known this man for a long time, and they knew there was a difference. This was the man we knew, the crippled beggar man. This is the man we see. He was healed. It was evident to all. But Peter and John saying to the Sanhedrin, we're not going to obey this. We know what we've seen and heard, and we're going to continue to preach the gospel, even though you're telling us not to. Okay. Um, Let's see. A similar thing happens again in verse 5. I'm going to not read the whole thing, but skip to verse 29. And they're again being told this another healing has been done and more believers are coming to Christ at the, end, at the beginning of uh, 512. But in, and then they're hauled before the authorities again and arrested in verse 18. And that's when the angel, uh, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. Okay. Uh, and then they're again telling them, uh, we're strictly charging you in verse 28 not to teach in this name. With your teaching, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. So they, you can feel the conviction that they're feeling for what they've done to Christ. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So this is a famous phrase, and it gets repeated a lot. We must obey God rather than men. Okay. Okay, so one of the lines that has to be crossed if we're going to disobey our civil authorities is if the civil authorities, whether it be could be the mayor, governor, president, congress, were to say to us, you can't meet permanently, you can't preach the gospel at all, you can't voice your concern about the unborn and abortion. Once that line is crossed, there is a freedom to disobey the governing authorities. Okay, we don't have time, but you can go to Daniel. Daniel twice. Okay, uh, Daniel and then Hadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobey the the Babylonian authorities because they're telling them they must worship Nebuchadnezzar or the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they refuse to say we can only worship the Lord. Okay, we have the Hebrew midwives in Egypt being told to murder every firstborn male child because the Pharaoh is feeling intimidated because God is blessing the Hebrew people there in the land of Goshen, they're on the Nile River and they're spreading and multiplying faster than the Egyptians and he gets intimidated about them. He tells the Hebrew midwives to kill the children, the men, the boys as they come out after they're born and they refuse. Their word is, they come out so fast, we can't catch them. Okay. And if you look at that in Exodus, it's uh, if you get it's a it gets you tickled. But it's Exodus one seventeen. The midwives say, "Well, the Hebrew women are so strong and virile that the babies come out faster than we can catch hold of them." Okay, so they refused to kill the Hebrew children. Of course, Moses is one of those who saved, put in the basket, you know, and floated on the river there. And so Daniel three and six. Then, of course, we have been in Acts 4, 18, and Acts 5, 29. And then Exodus 1, 17 are real good examples of believers in um, the Bible who felt that a line had been crossed and they could no longer obey governing authorities. Now, this is the thing. When, and you have to use wisdom, when do you perceive that the line has been crossed and you should disobey the, the authorities? Okay, John MacArthur and his church views very strongly that that line has been crossed, and so they're meeting anyway. I feel like when I look at the situation, it's like, well, I don't like it. I think there's some hypocritical things going on because you're, you're allowing the left-wingers and the protesters to march without masks and all this stuff, and you're allowing all these you know, um, businesses to stay open who are highly questionable. Uh, but they bring in a lot of money, so they're leaving them open. But then you're picking on us. Yeah, I don't like that. But you did say we could meet outside. Let's just meet outside. 
Okay, one of my favorite services that we ever had was when we were on Valleydale, and we took everything and I forgot what happened, but we moved everything outside and had the service in the parking lot. Okay, and we just took these chairs and just moved them outside. This altar is portable and just moved it outside. Okay, it's been a while, but it's just really vivid in my mind when we did that. <clears throat> and uh, the um, and I think it's doable. So I wouldn't totally agree with John MacArthur right now that, that they're not telling them they can't preach the gospel forever. They're just saying, change the way you meet. I know they're a much bigger church than us, so it'd be harder to meet outside. But I think you could tell folks just to bring their, you know, their little football chairs and everything. You, you take the games and just everybody bring a football chair or whatever, those a card or gaming chairs and just meet outside. Okay. And then we get a nice amplification system and just meet outside. So I could I could live with that as a pastor, I wouldn't think. But if they got to a point where they were shutting us all down, telling us we couldn't meet at all, um, telling us that, uh, uh, trying to use that as an opportunity to squash uh, the church or to put us in a situation to where we didn't have, uh, couldn't meet, therefore tithe money wasn't coming in, therefore the churches would have to close because they didn't have the money to run anymore. That would be a different situation. So from my perception, at least in the California situation, I'm not um, as sure I'm in agreement with John on this, but they wrote a beautiful document. And if you ever want this clearly stated, that's the document to read. Just keep in mind that it's written in such a way it kind of almost sounds like if you don't do what we're doing, you're compromised as a believer. And I don't think that's the case. Okay. So uh, they could meet outdoors. It has been tradition in the American church because of honoring the uh, government and the fact that we do have a democratic republic to try to accommodate the government's request as much as possible. So we know from the influenza epidemic from 1918 that churches throughout Washington completely closed. Uh, Francis Grimke has notes in his diary that for four Sundays he did not preach. He was a great African-American preacher. And he has notes and they have the church. They kept a lot of documentation back then of their meetings and who was there and who wasn't. And therefore, we know when they met and when they didn't. And it's been a tradition uh, going back to wear masks to accommodate the government as much as possible to prevent the spread of an epidemic. Uh, I think we're going to have bigger battles to fight than masks in the near future. If this uh, if some of these left wingers get into power that are that are uh, pushing as they're pushing, okay? And they get into power in November, okay? There's going to be a lot of push on the churches, and there's going to be a lot of desire to take away our tax-free uh, tax deductible status as a church. There's going to be a push, okay, to make us accept LGBT moral standards. There's going to be a push, okay, to try to get the church out of the public sphere, and marginalize us and privatize us, okay? Just a thing to pray about and something to consider in your voting. I think in the future, we're gonna have a bigger battle to fight and I'd rather fight the battle there than over masks and social distancing. I think we have a bigger battle to fight over what is biblical marriage, okay? Uh, what truly is sin and who the church, who truly is Lord of the church. Okay. Now, and then there's uh, the argument that's often used that Christ is Lord of the church, and then the government has its role, and it has sphere of authority, and they don't meet. Okay. In theology, they call it sphere sovereignty. Okay. And so MacArthur and them are saying the church is totally responsible for the church, and then the government's totally responsible for the government. My only concern with that argument is that it overlaps. Okay. The two spears overlap constantly. Okay, for instance, I have to obey the law. There's a fire extinguisher back there, and there's batteries in those exit lights. And every three years, I have to replace them. Why do I have to replace them? Because the local authority, the local fire department guy, says that I have to replace them. Okay, his spear of authority as a government official is affecting my spear of authority in the church, and we're going to submit to authority and obey him for the safety of the congregation. Okay, so those two spears to me overlap. And I don't think MacArthur and them are acknowledging that as much. I have to fill out a form when I perform a wedding. It's a little license I sign that tells the government this is an official marriage. 
Okay. Our spheres have overlapped. Okay. So I, I'm not totally convinced of their, their uh, theological argument here. But you see the issue. You're honoring authority as much as you can, trying your best to be a witness of Christ. But when the line is drawn to where we can't meet at all, to where we can't share the gospel, we have to update, uh, uh, accept beliefs, especially about sexual morality that we don't see in Scripture. Uh, that's when we have to take our stand. Okay, and Bonhoeffer and them, it took them a while, but it eventually came to the point. You know, we're out. We're, we're forming the Confessing Church, and we're out, and we're taking a stand against what Hitler has done. Okay, in Germany, and um, I don't think we're at that quite at that place yet here. Yet, there's some troubling signs, stormy clouds, a lot of rhetoric from the left. Okay that we want to pray about. We don't think we're quite there yet. But when we make, the, if that decision was made, we would consult with our bishop, all the bishops we would look to for advice and help. As We would hear your voice. As a rector's council, we would make a decision together with our bishops. If this, is this a line that's been crossed? If this has gone too far? You know, we do it as a group. We would listen to your voice. And most importantly, we'd listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and then, and then determine from then if a line has been crossed and we shouldn't obey the government on a particular new or threatening law. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would never have to come to this point where we have to make this kind of decision not to obey our governing authorities. Lord, I pray that in the history of this country, I just pray that we wouldn't come to that point. <clears throat> and have to consider that decision. But until then, Lord, we pray you give us wisdom as Christians, as believers, as churches, as bishops in our, uh, who govern over us. Give us wisdom and living the gospel in front of a secular culture that is growing more and more hostile to your name. We pray more and more wisdom, more and more help, more and more of your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.